This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. My co-host, Joe, is out of town today. My guest is Dr. Harold Braswell, an assistant professor of healthcare ethics at St. Louis University. He's also the author of The Crisis of U.S. Hospice Care, Family and Freedom at the End of Life, which explores the complicated history of hospice care in the U.S. and how it came to be. Dr. Braswell, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. So uh, let's start with small talk. Where did you grow up? Sure. Um, So I'm from a town called Merrick that's in Nassau County, Long Island. Uh, which I guess you would consider a suburb of New York, uh, 40 minutes away. Um, and it's a, it's a suburban town, uh, largely white population. Uh, I'm writing a book now about housing discrimination in America, mm-hmm. and that's been something that I've been reflecting on a lot in terms of my town because it's a town that, you know, like, like a lot of towns in America, like a lot of suburbs, is very much shaped by that. Mm. So what is the motivation for that new book you're working on? The, the Crisis of U.S. Hospice Care book is about family caregiving yes. in hospice and about how we have this hospice system that is, you know, very dependent on uh, unpaid family caregiving to a degree that most Americans can't provide. And this was true when the Medicare hospice benefit uh, came about in 1982. And it's a lot more true now in 2020. Um, So that book is about the family. But when I say the family, it's not just the family. It's the environment the family is in, the Mm. resources they have available to them, uh, you know, how old are they, what disabilities do they have, et cetera. Well, a part of that is housing and the neighborhood you live in. Mm. Uh, It's a home-based hospice system. This is a very important thing, which is very different than the British hospice system. You know, when we talk about hospices in America, we aren't talking about buildings, for the most part, called hospices, which, you know, I I think is very counterintuitive to most people. Like they assume like, oh, you work in a hospice, you work in this building, you stay there all the time, you know, like, no, you're you're driving, you know, you're driving all over the place. And so we have a home based hospice system in a country with ubiquitous anti black housing discrimination that Mm. goes back, you know, till the 20s and 30s. And, you know, arguably before, especially in a place where I am now, like St. Louis. And so, you know, that that's something that interested me in part because of where I'm from. And because once I started reading about housing discrimination, I realized that, oh, this is, it's a big part of my life, mm-hmm. you know? And like anything, when you learn that something's a part of your life, at least for me, you you want to learn more about it because you want to understand yourself and you want to understand what it means to be a human yes. uh, and what to do. And so as I was researching hospice already, I, I thought to work on that. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book uh, called now called Inhospitable, how housing discrimination shapes the way we die, mm. um, which is also under contract with Johns Hopkins. And I say I'm going to put scare quotes around writing because I'm homeschooling now because of COVID. So every, everything's kind of on ice right now. But, um, you know, it's it's a topic that is very important to me, um, you know, because there's a great 
I, I love Donald Winnicott's British psychoanalyst. He has a book called Home is Where We Start From. Mm. And so that's, you know, you think about your early life and your intimate experiences. And for me, it was quite shocking in my late 20s, early 30s. I'm 38 now. Oh, I'm 39 now. Jesus. Um, <laughs> to realize that, you know, anti-Black racism was part of those experiences uh, just by virtue of where I lived, which impacted a lot of other things. So, mm. um you know, I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but it's it's part of it's part of how I think about when somebody asks me where I'm from. That's that's often where I'm I'm sort of starting right now and thinking about it. Yeah. So, what is your uh, religious or spiritual background? So I'm uh, I was raised Reformed Jewish, um, and I would say secular Jew. Okay, I'm a secular mm. Jewish guy, and I still am today. Um, but I was raised by my grandparents. Um, which is very important. So, you know, these were people who, uh, they weren't just off the boat, but their parents were just off the boat and they grew up in Yiddish speaking houses. And so I, I grew up with, I guess what you would say is a very culturally Jewish American upbringing and a very strong Jewish identity, uh, you know, through that. Yet one that where the temple was a place you would go to hang out and be with other Jews, but it wasn't a place where I don't think I really knew anybody growing up who believed in God, um, at least not the way I would think about that now. Mm. Um, so I'm still secular Jewish. I think what has changed, though, is that as I've aged, I've, I've gotten a lot more interested in religion. Um, and, you know, it, to the extent that now I actually read theology. So what was the turning point for you? Okay, so there were... Uh, okay, so I think there were two turning points. Mm. Um, not not to ramble too much about my family, but so yeah. I was just by my grandparents because my mom uh, was deaf and she was, um, I would say, very significantly brain damaged uh, because uh, she was taught in New York City public schools at a time where deaf kids were not taught to sign. Mm. They were taught what's called oralism. So they were taught to lip read and try to, you know, basically say words that they were never able to hear. Um, this is a pretty bleak chapter in American history uh, mm. that we don't talk about a lot. But uh, the result of this was that she didn't learn a language until she was 10, when my wow. grandmother pulled her out of school uh, and homeschooled her with a sign language uh, teacher. Mm. And if you don't learn a language till you're 10, you've lost the ability to learn a language at that point developmentally. Yes. You know, you could learn words, but a language is more than that. A language, you know, I, I saw your dissertation was on meaning at the end of life. You know, a yes. language is a system of thought. It's it's part of what we think about with personhood. And so you become very brain damaged. And there's actually a disorder called, you know, language deprivation disorder, which um, anyway, so that was my mom. And so she couldn't raise me. And uh, I was raised by my grandparents. And um, but I had this interest in disability because my mm -hmm. mom was around and, and my grandmother's stories to me were very much about advocating on behalf of my mom. You want to talk about this book about family caregiving? Mm -hmm. You know, my, my grandmother was a family caregiver for my mom. And I think that that really influenced me. So the first experience with religion I had was I was living abroad in Buenos Aires, Argentina, figuring stuff out in my early 20s. Mm. And um, I was going to therapy. Uh, you know, you have a complicated family history you want to figure out. I was reading books and I realized that disability was a really big part of my life and I wanted to learn more about it and be with more disabled people. So my therapist recommended I get working at a uh, Catholic home for disabled, intellectually disabled women mm. called Cotolengo Donorione, which was in a not great part of Buenos Aires. People did not 
visit it uh, that I hung out with. But I guess I was less risk averse then. And so I went and I hung out with these nuns. And I didn't know anything about Catholicism. I was, you know, somewhat afraid, actually, that mm. they would try to convert me, which being, you know, secular Jewish, that's a thing you worry about. <laughs> of course. And, you know, but they were really cool, the nuns. And they really created a home for these women where there wasn't much of, this was right after the economic crisis in Argentina. There was not a social safety net. These are women who could have had very precarious lives. And mm. they really created a community of love. Um and so when you see someone who's religious do that, and you're a secular person like me, it kind of gives you pause because you see that they, they're doing it because of something related to their religion and that that's good. You mm. know, it's, it's just a good thing. I don't have much of a critique to say about it. Yeah. So anyway, fast forward very quickly. Um, 10 years later, I'm doing research on hospice in Atlanta. Um, and I'm working with one hospice, which let's call it a, um, relatively secular obviously it's it's not like everybody there was like baptist right but like you know the, the structure <laughs> mm. was a for-profit corporation okay mm. and you know um the volunteer coordinator who I was very close with they start talking about uh these nuns on the other side of town at this place called our lady of perpetual help home mm. and they said there was actually an espn story about them because they were right next to turner field and they would take, you know, dying people to the baseball games and they were all baseball fans because wow. the nuns come from all around the country. Yes. So part of how they relate to each other is your, your team affiliation. Um, and I thought they were pretty interesting. So I cold called one of them and I said, hey, do you think I could like research you or something like that? And she was like, yeah, you know, and so I started doing research there. And, you know, I found two things. Um, one in the other hospice, the secular one, there are these patients who I ended up writing this book about, mm. patients without um, adequate familial caregiving, and they kind of didn't have a home in hospice. It was it was sort of precarious. Well, in Atlanta, you could send those patients to the nuns, actually, and it would be, from a social worker's perspective, far preferable to sending them to a nursing home, mm. for example, or leaving them at home in a potentially or actually ne neglectful environment. And so these nuns, in some sense, they provided the starting point to the, an answer for what I was doing. And so I was interested in them initially from a health policy perspective. But then you interview them and, you know, they'll start talking about Jesus pretty quickly, you know, if you start <laughs> yes. with health policy. And I realized that the reason they were doing it was because they go to mass every morning, they take the Eucharist, that's a really big part of it, and that's how they see their whole care. So I guess I got interested in religion because I got interested. I came to admire religious people mm. and I wanted to understand why they do stuff. So the way they saw and treated people seemed to have had that big impact on you. Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, let me say that these are patients that no one else either wanted or could care for. You know, I mean, that's how they got there, right? It's, mm. a, it's a place where, and, you know, so these were. Uh, a lot of the patients were very wonderful, but others were difficult um, medically, sometimes personally, et cetera. And the nuns were very, and are, by the way, they're still there, mm -hmm. very committed to them. And this practice of seeing Jesus, uh, which is also, they, you know, they, like, you know they, they want the patients to see Jesus in them. It's not yes. a one-way thing. That's what was in part so beautiful for it about me, that it was profoundly democratizing mm -hmm. um, in a way. And as a guy, you know, I found it sort of incredible as a as a practice to ground end of life care, 
And as I write about in the article, you know, though uh, I'm Jewish, I'm a secular Jewish guy, um, kind of going to mass with them, uh, talking with them, I found it very personally moving, you know, myself in terms of thinking about my own life. Mm. Um, my relationship with my mother, uh, who I talked about, had gotten a little bit more complicated uh, at that point in my life. Um, I had learned that, you know, there was some history of early life neglect there. And so I was trying to sort of think about how this would change my relationship with her. And I think seeing Jesus, it, it gave me a good starting point. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, you have to be grateful when people yeah. give you stuff like that, when you don't know what to do, where you lack resources. Um, if, if you could find, if someone gives you something, mm. you are always grateful. And I'm very grateful. It's obvious that you saw Jesus in them. Did the people they cared for see Jesus in them? Yeah, well, so in my, in my, yeah, broadly, yes. And, and I think that you have to understand that this is Georgia. So this is not Catholic country. <laughs> and this is very important, yes. right? Okay, yes. so these are Baptists. So this is the thing, like, you know, where I never heard this, story, but people would say to me, you would hear on the radio, you know, people would talk about, like, Jews, Christians, and Catholics, you know, like 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 three different things. And so, um, and most of the patients were not Catholic. Um, and in that, in fact, was actually part, part, as I understand it, the reason why they were there, you know, sort of to put a good representation of Catholicism, to show people who might be suspicious of Catholicism that uh, they were. And, you know, in my book, um, I talk about one guy, Simon, that, you know, uh, when I started interviewing him, I came good friends with him. You know, he said to me, if if you say anything bad about them, I'll kill you. You know, like literally <laughs> like this was, you know, just the people were were very grateful because, again, they're not there unless they've been moved around mm. to a couple of different places. Right. You know, you, yeah. you're, you're in an emergency room. You go to an inpatient unit, but you're not, you know, actively dying. So that's only for a couple of days. Then you're home. Maybe, you know, you're in a nursing home. You know, it's 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 a it's generally a somewhat traumatizing period before they get there. And one of the things that they they love the care and they love the stability, mm-hmm. you know, that they know that they're not. You know, it, it seems weird to think com- that it would be comforting that, you know, you're going to die someplace. Yeah. But it's if you know you're dying and you don't know where you're going to die, that's worse. Right. Like, you know, you <laughs> yes. could be moving all around. And that, unfortunately, was the situation of uh, at least a few patients that I was seeing in the other hospice and so no they were they were very grateful and you know and you would get things too like you know they had the um the chapel and you would get you know i was a jewish guy going to mass you would have actually baptists you know like would go to mass with them in the morning and and you know really enjoy it so for me it was a model of religious pluralism in a way and 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 a vibrant religious pluralism that sort of went beyond tolerance Mm. to curiosity and sort of a transformation Mm. um and yeah, so I I think that I and I, I I've never thought of it that way, but I'm very moved that you said that I saw Jesus in them. Yes. I've never thought of it that way. I want I want you to know that, and you're right, you know. But I couldn't have done that if I didn't know them first. Mm. You know, they yes. gave me the tools to see them in a more profound way, and yeah, just grateful. Yeah, uh, just in this little segment, you've shared a lot about your background. How have all these experiences so far uh, made you? to deal with this pandemic we are in? In terms of my personal life, I'm very comfortable and happy in the pandemic. Mm. And that's because I am in some sense, um, I don't, there probably are people more privileged than me, certainly economically, but I'm a tenured professor, okay, in a pandemic. And what that means mm. is that I have a lot of flexibility in terms of how much work I do. And, and you know, to some, I, I do work hard, 
but usually at night and, and not as hard as I was working before. And I can do that now because I have tenure. Mm-hmm. So that's allowed me to um, sort of make the most of this. And what's that entailed is that uh, I'm homeschooling my seven-year-old daughter. And it's been an extremely beautiful thing. You know, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm I, I've never... I don't know. I, 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 I've, I've outsourced education like most people to, yes. uh, you know, the, the school, you know, the, the, the school. It's a great school, by the way. And there are benefits to that. I'm able to work, you know, and, and things like that. But this year I, I didn't want to do that. And I had the option. So I'm teaching my daughter arithmetic um, and I'm seeing how. In some ways, how how much fuller the concepts that she's learning can become because they're threaded through our relationship in a very intimate way. Um, and I've grown a lot closer to her. And I think I've become a better dad, um, which is, I think, the most important thing to me. And I think I've reflected on my own life. You know, you learn this stuff when you're six, seven, eight. At least if you're me, you forget that. You know, you forget all of that. And, you know, by the way, I should say that some of the ways that I learned math and things like that were not fun ways to learn math, you know, um, my dad, my grandfather, but he was my dad, he was, he was a really great guy, mm-hmm. but he was, a, he was a disciplinarian, you know, and I learned math in a way that I think made me think I was bad at math, which I actually wasn't that bad at math, but, <laughs> but made me think that and, and made me very massive math averse. And so to, to revisit that and to kind of give it a new meaning, you know, again, you know, your dissertation meaning, right, yes, is, yes. is meaning is not window dressing. Meaning is not superficial. You know, it, it mm-hmm. changes the object itself. Yes. And and for me, my relationship to my daughter, to myself and to math, which, again, I'm very focused on math, but it's an issue for <laughs> me that changed. So personally, I'm amazing. Um, politically, I'm I'm despairing like mm. I've probably never despaired before. Um, you know, there's an article, you know, talking about housing discrimination. Right. Yes. Um, yes. David Barton Smith, the health affairs article about racial segregation in nursing homes. That's from 2007. Mm. And talking about housing discrimination, how do most people pay for their long-term care in this country? Maybe not most, but a, a lot of people pay for their long-term care um, based on wealth because it's very expensive that they've accumulated. Housing discrimination is, I would say, perhaps the primary driver of the racial wealth gap in this country. This inhibits the ability of black people and people of color in general to pay for long-term care. Um, and specifically, I would say if you go to a long term care conference, you might be surprised to see a real estate agent there. So there are real estate agents who specialize in people selling their homes right before they go to long term care. Yes. So what's happened as a result of this? This is what the article argues from 2007. And I want to come back to that date because mm. what we're seeing now is not it's not new. OK, it's stuff that could have changed a long time ago and we'd be experiencing this very differently. So um is that people sell their house, they pay for long-term care. Well, what if you don't have a house? Or if you're African-American, you didn't, you and your ancestors didn't benefit from housing discrimination. Hmm. You don't have the money to do that. So you go to a nursing home that's funded by Medicaid for the most part, yes. okay? Yes. And Medicaid-funded nursing homes just have much worse outcomes because they have less money. They have, you know, it talks about hospice, delivering hospice in a Medicaid-funded nursing home. It's very difficult. Staff turnover, overcrowded, understaffed, huge turnover, very difficult to get continuity of care. And actually in nursing homes, when we talk about, you know, most of the, I think 40 to 50% of COVID deaths are in nursing homes, uh, but not all nursing homes are equal. 
there are huge differences in nursing homes that have more researchers, uh, resources. There's a NBER economic working paper on this. I, I wish I had the citation. And, and those that have less. So we're looking at racial disparities with COVID right now. And we're looking at the toll that this has taken on people in nursing homes. And it's it's stuff we could have foreseen and taken care of a really long time ago. And that just, it, it makes me very sad. And I try to focus on this because when we're talking about people in nursing homes, we're think, talking often about a population that unfortunately um, it doesn't get talked about a lot, mm-hmm. except in a very negative way, almost as if you know they were better off dead or something like that. And you see that there are rationalizations like that with COVID as well, where people are like, oh, they're in their 60s, they're in their 70s, you know, whatever. No, not whatever. You know, these are people that in other contexts um, could be developing. They could be growing. They could be having meaningful experiences just like you and me. Mm. And they're dying. And this is a thing that we've got to focus really hard to, to realize this is happening and to try to take the steps to ameliorate that. And that's something that, you know, when I wrote this book, The Crisis of Goes Hospice Care, I was concerned about. Mm. Um, because, you know, I think a goal that I had with this book, probably the main goal, was just to get people talking about end-of-life care in this country and the politics of it. You mm. know, we just sat through or skipped over a bunch of presidential debates. Uh, guess what didn't come up? End-of-life care. That's, that's you know, true. Uh, it, it never comes up. This is not an issue that we see as political in this country. If we see it, you know, if we see it at all, it's, it's private. It's, you know, just sort of, oh, well, let's... You know, we don't really we don't really see it until we're dying or someone close to us is dying. And when you're in that situation, it's a traumatic situation. It's not a good situation to understand what's going on, unfortunately. And so what happens is that there's rarely any political will to make the changes that need to be made in our end of life care system and our long term care system, which provides a foundation for our end of life care system, nursing homes, home health aides. And what I wanted to do with this book is to primarily is to just get people talking about it and to know that actually this is a political issue. When we talk about social justice, this this should come up, okay? This this should come up. And, and we talk about, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum, you want to talk about Christian charity or whatever, you know, however you think about it. I mean, it's it, it, the, the sad part about it is that I actually think that's a political issue that a lot of people could agree on, mm. you know, that, that, that we need new ways of thinking about long-term care and end-of-life care. But that political group which could be big enough to make change never seems to manifest um and that's something that i wanted to do and seeing covid has made me more aware of the costs of this of not having that because this is not it's not the last crisis you know we're going to have in our lifetimes yeah that affects you know dying people and people who are you know of long-term disabilities so that's that's something I've been thinking about too and that I, I was thinking about before but now even more so. Mm. Well that would take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. This is Saul Abam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with Harold. Uh, in your book, uh, you write about, you, you have a discussion 
about the right to die and and the question about the freedom of choice versus uh, physician-assisted suicide. Could you talk more about that with our listeners? Yes. Um, so let me say that, you know, I decided to get a PhD because I was interested in the right to die. I came at it from, I guess, what you could call a disability rights perspective, um, which is a bit different than uh, either, you know, the right to die, like most issues in America, I think somewhat unfortunately, it gets routed through the culture wars. Uh, you're either pro-life or you're pro-choice, um, highly dependent on geography. And, you know, I was pro-choice because I'm from New York. I'm a secular guy. It just sort of made a lot of sense to me. And then, you know, in my 20s, back when I was volunteering uh, in, in Argentina and reading these books, I came across disability rights critiques of the right to die, which were very shocking to me because these are critiques from secular, more secular than me, mm. more left wing than me, people like, you know, very radical critiques. And they viewed the right to die as essentially a du discriminatory double standard in the treatment of suicidal ideation for disabled people and to some degree terminally ill people as well. Terminally ill people were not the focus of their critique. It was more on people with long term disabilities. But that was the basic idea that this is these are people who are suicidal. They deserve the same care as anybody else. And the reason why it's even worse, actually, because the reason why they're suicidal is because they live in a society that discriminates against them. Uh, you know, David Rivlin, a great article by Paul Longmore, two cases of physician assisted suicide, is a guy who was in a nursing home. He actually it wasn't physician assisted suicide. It was removal of life sustaining treatment. He was on a ventilator mm. and he wanted this because he viewed his life as not having value because of the nursing home. But the people did not see that it was the context. They said, oh, he's in a wheelchair. You know, he has a disability. That's why his life has no value. They didn't they didn't take him out of the context. And as a result of that, he died. After he died, Paul Longmore found um, that actually um, there was a social work error and he could have gotten out of the nursing home uh, and lived independently in the community, which would have changed his outlook on life completely. Yes. And that actually happened to this guy, Larry McAfee, who's the second case that Longmore talks about. He's a guy who wanted to die, was in a nursing home, was able to get assistive technology that allowed him to live in the community and then revoked his desire to die. So this, for me, was very moving. It just seemed to me that this was a population that we've given up on. And, and it was quite shocking, though, because I, I was sort of I was on the wrong side in some ways, which I you know, you never you never think of yourself. You, if you're <laughs> me, it's like being wrong. Right. About yes. stuff like this. And I was like, wait a minute, like, uh, actually, this is this is a really big problem. And so I went to graduate school. And I wanted to work on that. And what I wanted to work on was um, dying people. How do they fit into this? You know, um, David L Rivlin, Larry McAfee, were people with long term disabilities. Um, how terminally ill people would fit into this was interesting, but there wasn't a great answer to that because terminally ill people are very disabled. They have a lot of disabilities, mm. um, but they're also in some ways different than the kind of populations that the disability rights movement has been built around. Yes. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to go work uh, in, in the community for the most part uh, if, if you're terminally ill. But disability rights for a lot of was about labor. So I started working on that. And then, you know, that I've written a bunch of articles about that. I care a lot about it, all of which is a kind of preface of saying that in this book, I do something different. I don't take a position on the right to die in this book. I want everybody to understand this, that 
I don't say that it's good. I don't say that it's bad. Yes. I say that actually it's a thing that we could reasonably disagree about. Mm. And I do think that's true, even from a disability rights perspective. I would say that, you know, later in life, I would discover there are disability rights advocates, less of them, but there are some who support the right to die because they think, well, autonomy is a foundational uh, principle of the disability rights movement. This sort of fits into that. There's a reasonable debate. And my intervention in the book is to say, A, it's a reasonable debate so that people who disagree with you, you don't have to hate them. You know, you could it's it's, it's like a friendly disagreement. Like, you know, you and I, we, we see it a little bit differently, but you make a lot of good points. I make a lot of good points. Like, I think that there are actually good points on both sides of this debate, and I wish we would hear each other. But I think the biggest point is that it's very unfortunate that this debate is the main way that Americans think about dying as a political issue. So if end-of-life care was going to come up in a presidential debate, which it won't because you could kind of ignore it, you know, anyway, it would come up through the right to die, where Joe Biden would say, you know, I'm a Catholic, but I, I think I support this, you know, people have no choice. And then Donald Trump would say death with dignity, you know, essentially is death panels. And it, it would just get plugged into the same thing as everything else. And we yes. nothing would change. OK. And my intervention is to say, look, this is less important. It's less important than the people in nursing homes mm. who could be in either much better inpatient facilities or at home if they had if we had good long term care support at home. It's a lot less important than the fact that people on average don't get on hospice until 12 days before they're dead, which is far too far too. It's not nowhere near enough time to do the kind of work that, you know, you as a chaplain would need to do. Right. The social workers would need to do that. Doctors, nurses would need to do. These are scandals, okay? The dependence of the hospice system on unpaid family caregiving for some of the sickest patients in the country, where you have lay people doing, you know, not medical care, but you know, it's 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 an, it can be intense care. Mm. Uh, these are things that we should be talking about and we should be politicizing, but it never comes up because we are just so focused on the right to die. So my intervention here is to say, look, agree to disagree. You know, let's fix the other stuff and then we'll come back to this. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's let's change long term care. Let's, you know, get a much more generous hospice benefit in this country and a much more value appreciation of the value of hospice, which I think is not broadly understood. Unfortunately, hospice is still stigmatized. You know, I was talking to somebody who is a, a, a medical resident doing hospice and palliative care. And, you know, she said that there's a push to not even talk about hospice, to just say they do palliative care because dying is so stigmatized. I think we've got to push back on that. And we've got to claim dying as a place where meaning, change, growth, development, and sadness mm. is a part of it. Yes. But sadness is not against all of those things can happen. And if, if the discussion is just, you know, it's my freedom or it's death with dignity or whatever, we're not going to get there. So that, that's my intervention. Mm. Do you think um, dying would be better if hospice, um, if hospice functioned more like in England where people were in a facility and taken care of that way instead of at home. So, yes, one clarification. They're not necessarily, there's home care in England, okay? okay? It came later. So yeah. in America, home care came before inpatient care, like like uh, seven years before, in the case of Hospice Inc. They had a home care service running in 1974. That is was bad because, you know, for, for various reasons. In, so I think in England, what you have is you can choose. And I think that is better. Okay. That, that you have facilities that integrate long-term and inpatient care in them. 
So what we have in America right now is you go to a nursing home, but a nursing home is not an end-of-life care facility. No. It's a long-term care facility, and then you do outpatient hospice there. Well, that can lead, that's, that's an extra complication. You have to educate people working in the nursing home on what hospice is. They might be very suspicious of hospice because they might think, you know, they, they're, they're trained in skilling patients, right? That's how nursing homes get money. Um, and so they see you, you know, talking about removing treatments, doing things like that. They might think it's a different culture of care. They might think, oh, you're trying to kill the patient. Whereas you look at them and you think, oh, they're trying to skill him to death. That's not a good basis for teamwork and for communication. And anyway, there's so much staff turnover that, you know, you come back next week, it's a different guy, you've got to educate him, you know, et cetera. In England, and this is like Our Lady, which I was talking about in America, they could do this because it's a charitable facility. It's both in the same building. The same people doing long-term care also do end-of-life care, and that's part of their identity. It's integrated. Mm. So that would be a huge improvement. And in terms of home care, um, you know, I actually don't know in England, but I think that, you know, so the option is better. And I also think that in addition, an option, uh, so in that sense, it's better that they have that the inpatient unit there and that you could stay there for a long time. You're not going to get rushed out. And it's also better, it would be better at least if we had more support for caregivers in the home context, more long-term care delivered there so that you wouldn't have to go to the inpatient unit. But I would say that, you know, in my book, I talk about this guy, Stephen, um, and he was a, a pretty poor uh, white guy, former um, drug addict, you know, sort of living in this very precarious situation. He had no caregivers. So he, when, when he got his respite, care. It was like respite from himself because he was like the caregiver for himself. He mm. would go to the inpatient unit and that was the best time at the end of life for him. You know, he didn't have to worry about tripping on stuff on his floor. The, you know, he had a great relationship with the chef there, with the people. And so um, it's, it would be a huge difference. And But then he had to leave after the respite time was over, you know, and go back to this home environment that was, it was hell. It was very bad. And so it would be much better if we had that option, like in England. Yes. Mm. Uh, you speak a lot about family caregiving situation, and, and that is powerful because I've also seen, I've done a little research on immigrant family caregivers and yeah. the impact, even the economic impact, where in most cases they have to quit their jobs uh, to take care of this elder who is dying. Uh, talk to us more about that, uh, the challenges of family caregiving. So, you know, challenges, and I'm also going to say the, the beauty, if, if, if it can go well, but we need to put some money behind it if we that's want true. it to go well, you know, and that, that's yeah. a part of it, right? Because people often, they, people, you know, hospice, unfortunately, in this country, um, it got passed because people, Republicans, Democrats did care about dying, but they also wanted to save money. Okay, that, that, that is an unfortunate aspect of, of hospice's history, but good hospice care is not cheaper. It redistributes the cost. You know, your chaplain, right? You want to make money. We got to pay chaplains. Okay. We got to pay social workers. You know, that, that is important. And, you know, family caregivers, we need to provide a context. You know, possibly paying family caregivers, by the way, I'm not opposed to that, but certainly putting more money in there so that they could have the support. Yes. The costs of family caregiving, um, are, it's an enormous amount of money and lost income for the family. Um, and and for the country as well, by the way, um, you know, immigrants, um, obviously, that's a huge category. But, you know, it's interesting in, in the in the book, I have a case study uh, of uh, a woman uh, who was Puerto Rican. Um, so 
I guess not technically an immigrant, but you know, did come to America later to care uh, for her father. And she and I, I don't think I think this is more common in immigrant communities where there's more of a value on family caregiving. We're actually sending someone to a nursing home or an institution would be more stigmatized, which I reject that stigma. But this is something you know that came from it. She she quit her job. She was an mm. accountant. And she cared for her dad for uh, 10 years, which is a long time. He had mm-hmm. Parkinson's um, and then this. And, you know, it was interesting because she was not bitter about this. You know, for her, it was like, he's my father. Like, he cared for me when I was a, a kid growing up. And, you know, so it's a huge sacrifice. I don't want to romanticize it. But I would also say that he got really good care from her. You know, they were going to put him on a feeding tube. And she figured out a way that she could feed him, you know, like taking the time she was able to actually do it, you know, and, and, you know, she had this very strong familial bond with him. And and she was also, you know, I should say she was healthy. Her husband uh, was a mechanic. He had a good job. He could support the family. Um, and they were able to do it. So that for me was a, it was a, it was a transformative example because it was like, okay, when this, when this works, it's very beautiful. Um, on the other hand, we should also look at the flip side, which is people who, they can't take the hit economically, which is most people, by the way. Um, people who, you know, um, before people were dying, um, they were not dying. And before they were dying, they could sometimes be difficult. You know, not mm. not everybody has an uncomplicated love of their father or mother or brother or sister or husband or wife, you know. And and the the fact that they magically become they become dying doesn't necessarily magically change that you know mm-hmm. it could change that if there's the context if there's a chaplain to talk with them if there's a social worker to help them work through some of the emotional things but if not those grievances and resentments which might be valid by the way um they play out and they can play out in ways that are are ugly and that we should be aware of that if we want to do it right you know there was a, this very you know I, I talk about this as the hospice family romance Mm. Um, which there's this, this book by Lynn Hunt called The Family Romance of the French Revolution, mm. which is about how every revolutionary movement has, you know, is underpinned by a vision of the ideal family that was lost when, you know, blank happened. OK, when, you know, that, and that we want to return to. That's the state of nature. Mm. Hospice is no different. And it's this idea of returning back to family caregiving that predated the rise of medical authority mm. in the mid to late 19th century and the rise of hospitals specifically. And. It's a romantic vision, and though there there may have been, and you know, there probably were some positive things about family caregiving. Then we shouldn't let that um, kind of obscure the reality we're dealing with right now. And and in the planning of hospice in America, it did. So that's why all this stuff got dumped on the family, and uh, it's it can. It, I think it's a net negative the way we've structured it. And to make it a net positive, we're going to need to have these conversations and take it very seriously. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soleil Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Harold, how did your passion, you know, for long-term care facilities and seeing the challenges they're going through, how did that start for you? So, 
I think it started in part, you know, I was doing field work and I saw um, that there uh, situations that seemed to me to be wrong. Um, I think it started in part because of my family and my mother's story, which my mother had, um, you know, just basically being neglected by society and kind of forgotten instilled in me a strong ethic to care about people who are forgotten. But I think that a, a really thing that came, got layered on top of this was that um, when I finished my dissertation, it wasn't about family caregiving. Okay. My, my dissertation was about death, mm. how death was defined um, in hospice. And I think that's interesting, by the way, but <laughs> I got, I got interested in family caregiving because when I was on the job market, I would talk to people about my research and I would talk about nursing homes, for example, um, and how they were not places for dying people. They're not designed for dying people. Uh, they're not really play good places for disabled people. You know, from a disability rights perspective, these are segregationist institutions. That's what they do. They separate disabled people, a broad swath, right? You know, like mm. people who are in their 20s, people who are in their 80s, you know, from society, and then people forget about them. Um, so this is bad from a disability perspective, but from an end-of-life perspective, it's much worse, you know, because they're really not designed for dying people. And so I would say stuff like this. I would talk a little bit, and then people would cry. People that I was talking to would cry. Uh, I had a dean on a search committee cry in front of me, uh, which is not, you know, you think about a dean. A dean has power. A guy on a job market does not have power. But she was crying, and she was crying because she had sent her dad to a nursing home. And she felt really bad about that. She felt like a bad daughter as a result of that. And, you know, that got me thinking that actually, you know, as much as, you know, I think you and I were talking earlier, this doesn't come up in politics. People do experience this in their own family. Mm. The problem is they experience it privately. And when they send their loved one to a nursing home uh, or have a bad hospice experience, they don't see the political dimension of it. They think of it as a private failing. They think I'm a bad daughter. What it means that my dad got bad care in the nursing home is that I'm a failure as a daughter in some way. And that made me really sad because I didn't think this woman was a bad daughter. I thought that she was in a system that's designed to fail her and to fail dying people. That's what it is. You know, what, 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 what do you want her to do? But she didn't see that. And, you know, then I, I read this book, which I highly recommend, called Caring for Our Own our own, O-N, O-W-N, mm -hmm. uh, by Sandra Levitsky, who's a sociologist at Michigan. And she actually makes this exact argument that this is why we don't have a long-term care system, a proper one in this country, is that there's, uh, in America, a very strong ethic of familial responsibility. Um, and so people try to care for their disabled loved ones for as long as they can. But eventually, you know, it gets very hard, and they send them to a nursing home, and it goes badly, but instead of blaming the government or the arrangement or underfunding of our nursing home system, um, they blame themselves. And so they, they kind of privatize guilt and responsibility, and then they don't do anything about it. They just walk around feeling really bad. And as a result of that, we don't have a long-term care system. So it's very sinister because it takes something that's essentially good, which is the love of a, a daughter for her father, you know, family bonds. And it makes it into something bad, which is that, you know, they, they, they care for their parents so intensely that they actually just blame themselves rather than taking it to the state. And so reading that book was very transformative. Bruce Jennings makes a similar argument about hospice, actually, that people just privatize their bad experiences with hospice. And so that 
that made me really want to write the book because it it's we're not going to get out of this if we can't show people that there's a political dimension to their private suffering and as a human i don't like it when people blame themselves for things that aren't their fault i don't like it when people give themselves a hard time especially when it's counterproductive but even in itself and so i wanted to change that so um well you've pointed a lot um a lot of issues concern the challenges of dying in america so how can how can uh, the hospice experience or the dying experience be made better talking about it you know can bring change and it could also bring comfort to people to see their stories reflected in the the public sphere right to know that they're not alone that you know mm. for this woman to know that she's not an isolated individual who failed her father no that actually this is a whole class of people and there've been great articles there's an article hospice and crisis in politico about that and there's another one uh in kaiser health news uh i forget the uh exact title about this so talking about it i actually think helps in itself but it helps more so so that we could actually generate the political well to change things now what should we change you know that's a strategic question which we could think about you know i i personally and by the way people see different things and this is the beauty of politics you know you're different than me you have probably seen things that need fixing in hospice that i haven't seen but let's talk and let's walk work about it and then we'll figure out okay how are we going to prioritize about it which demand do we go first you know how do we go from there i i want to see that conversation playing out now for me you know the things i always sort of lean on are i would like to see integrated long term end of life care facilities uh in 1982 rosemary johnson who who herzler who is the uh, head of hospice inc this 1982 testified in 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 the senate saying that the 80-20 ratio of outpatient inpatient care is not what she had seen in Connecticut in the 70s. It had to be 50-50. Okay, so that, you know, so the way hospice is set up right now, 80% of a, uh, you know, a given hospice um census, you know, has to be sort of outpatient care and 20% can take place in the inpatient context. She was saying that was insufficient in the 70s. It needed to be 50-50. I think it's even more insufficient now. So we need to have more funding for inpatient care and an integration of long-term and inpatient care. At the same time, we need to have long-term care support for caregivers in the home. I think is a really big thing. Um and those would be I guess the the main the main things I would say. I also think that making hospice contingent on giving up, you know, quote unquote invasive life-sustaining treatments was again, it was a cost-saving thing and I I I do understand it, but I think that it's it's not been good. I mean that's why we don't get people on hospice until 12 days uh before they're dying. So if if there were opportunities to integrate it earlier now palliative care is one way to kind of get the conversation going but it has a very different funding structure, um a very different way of integration and you know I I think the positive of hospice versus palliative care in cases like this is that it gets conversations about dying started earlier mm. which I think is extremely important. It's not just palliating pain it's thinking about you know you're not going to exist in the same way if at all in a little while and i think that that's a hard thing to talk about but you know as you know from your dissertation i'm sure through the subsequent work it's really important and you can have those conversations while on chemotherapy by the way you know like a, <laughs> like a hail mary chemotherapy it doesn't mean that you don't know that that person knows about dying 
Like they're, they're not like oblivious that this is a possibility. So look, let's start these conversations earlier. And this actually is a big bar- barrier to minority access um, as well to hospice. Um, so I think those are that if I had to make a laundry list, those would be my demands. But my biggest demand is let's start working together and, and kind of mobilizing. And well said, uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Any final thoughts? Well, two final thoughts. One, and this is this, I will do a shameless plug. My book is actually on sale for 40% off at Johns Hopkins University Press.com. Um, they have a holiday sale. So this would be a great time to buy your book. You'll save yourself 40%, which is substantial. Secondly, this is my first podcast I, interview I've ever done. And I'm really grateful uh, to you and also, uh, so your partner is Joe. Is that? Yes. Who? Yeah. Okay. Joe, Joe, for doing this because these are the space. If, if this podcast didn't exist and if the space didn't exist, I wouldn't get interviewed and we really wouldn't talk about it. You know, I, and, and that's a, that's a huge, like I said, this is my priority is more public conversations about this. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Saul, for inviting me here and, um, you know, for, for just creating this space. I, I do think that this is something that is, is something to build on and we need it. I believe you. So we have to do this conversation again sometime because there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about. Thank you very much. Whenever you want, man. Take care. (laughs) All right. That was Dr. Harold Braswell. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 